0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Organic BC, a nonprofit organization that celebrates, champions, and advocates for the organic sector and broader organic community in British Columbia. Learn more at organicbc.org. My name's Jordan Marr. I'm a BC-based organic farmer, and I'm the host of this podcast. In late 2020, in light of uncertainty caused by the pandemic, Organic BC developed an alternative to its regular in-person annual conference – The conference was mostly online, and its centerpiece was a 40-episode podcast that it produced for conference ticket holders. Our intention was to eventually make these episodes available for free to the public, and what you're about to hear is one of those episodes. Our plan is to release them all on this podcast feed over the next few months. Meanwhile, the Organic BC Conference Committee is busy planning your next conference, which will, once again, take place in person. But it's also going to include a smaller slate of new podcast episodes to be released in January. I'll provide more info about all of that throughout the fall. But for now, I hope you enjoy this episode from the 2021 conference podcast. Oh, and by the way, we also incorporated the annual conference trade show into this podcast series. So we may or may not be taking a break in the middle of this episode for a short trip to that trade show. You'll know what I mean if you hear it. Okay, talk to you at the end, everybody. Brian Spencer was trained as a molecular biologist, but he found his way to biological pest control and never left. This episode, a conversation with Brian, who has devoted his career to mastering the control of bad bugs with good ones. This conversation is one of my favorites of this series and will be of interest to everyone, not just the pest obsessed. Our conversation was kind of free range. Brian knows lots and lots about this subject and generously offered to share some of it with all of us. We'll also be taking a trip to the conference trade show this episode, BC food web. One more thing, everyone, a quick disclosure, Brian's company applied bionomics is a sponsor of this podcast series. I hadn't planned to record this episode, but when I interviewed Brian for his company's trade show spot, it was abundantly clear to me that Brian is a fascinating guy with lots of knowledge to share. So I asked him if he'd be willing to get back on the phone to talk about biological pest control. And I emphasize, we'd be talking about the subject not his company. I'm so glad he obliged because, well, just listen to this episode. But what I really wanna get across here is that Applied Bionomics did not ask me to record this episode, nor impose any conditions on what had to be included in it. Okay, that's all, here we go. Hi, I'm Brian Spencer.
1: I'm the president of Applied Bionomics. Uh, I've been with Applied Bionomics for about 30 years. The company is about 36 years old. Uh, established on Vancouver Island, and we've uh, haven't uh, moved since. So we're uh, we're a strongly uh, West Coast Cascadian company. Um, our main focus uh, originally was to uh, provide uh, beneficial insects for the cucumber, tomato, and uh, burgeoning pepper industry. Um, since that time, we have uh, uh, we still do that that work, but we uh, have focused on more outdoor uh, crops. Nurseries, propagation, and sustainable agriculture, uh, ranging from uh, bananas in Honduras and uh, palms in Trinidad to pecans in Oklahoma and uh, apples in uh, Wenatchee, Washington, and uh, and the list goes on and on.
0: Brian Spencer, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast.
1: No problem. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Brian, I thought we'd start this conversation about biological pest control um, by talking about you and what got you interested in the first place so many years ago.
1: Oh, okay. Well, my background is I have a degree in microbiology from University of British Columbia, and I wanted to be a marine microbiologist, but when I graduated, I realized there was no such thing. So... uh, I was a bit despondent and the dean of microbiology at UBC put me into uh uh into asked me if I would be interested in becoming an apprentice winemaker that he uh, has uh, populated the Canadian wine industry over the uh, over the years about every 5 years he introduces a new person to the wine industry so I became a uh, apprentice winemaker and a wine master and production manager and plant manager and a uh, senior winemaker in, in a company that's now called Peller Estates. Originally, it was Andre's Wines, and I started in the Port Moody plant uh, doing uh, quality assurance and then uh, becoming the apprentice winemaker and cellar master. So I was um, used to arguing and trying to come up with better alternatives for uh, pest control in the grapes, and uh, then one day I was sitting in the, my dentist's office uh, reading an article about Don Elliott, who founded uh, Applied Bionomics and the beneficial and about the benefit, beneficial insects. And, and I thought, wow, that's uh, actually exactly what we need. We need a company that's uh, promoting this kind of thing at a much higher level. So, uh, so I was getting ready to leave the wine industry anyway. I had done my 10 years and uh, wanted to move on. And uh, this was an opportunity to jump into a new industry. So, uh, so that's what got me interested
0: and at that time that you joined the company what what was the main focus
1: uh the main focus was still the big tomato guys the pepper guys the cucumber guys um we we started to notice that um when i first started working there there was one grower named uh, tony cavanaugh and he uh pulled me aside when don took me around he was a richmond uh, cucumber grower and and he was just getting ready to retire, and he pulled me aside, and he said, uh, "Brian, he says you got to promise me one thing. He says you got to try and figure out why the products don't work as good as they used to work." And uh, that sort of haunted me for uh, for a while. And then we started to notice that um, the industry, because it was getting bigger, because it wanted to be more consistent, uh, was starting to store the products uh, much longer, and uh, we started to do trials without using stored product and noticed there was a huge difference in efficacy, um, which um, which suddenly got us very excited because when we started dealing with much more efficacious non-refrigerated product, we were then able to go to the ornamental industry, which of course is a much higher or lower, lower threshold for pest damage, and talk to them about uh, very efficacious products that could actually prevent Damage like spider mite damage and prevent aphid establishment, and that then led to nurseries and it led to uh, starting to work with field crops like apples, uh, apple orchards, and uh, and broccoli and onion fields of onions. And uh, we realized that as long as the product was fresh and efficacious, and as long as we approached it in a in a logical biological way. we could actually get very, very good efficacy uh, in these uh, what I would call non-traditional markets for the biological controls.
0: Well, Brian, I think I want to stop and then look backward and uh, ask you to give us, uh, to the best you're able to, a brief history of the use of of beneficial insects in pest control.
1: There's sort of ancient history. I mean, the the Chinese used... uh, uh, fire ants to control uh, problems in their plums, uh, you know, thousands of years ago. But, but real realistically, modern uh, biocontrol started in California um, about 120 years ago with the citrus industry when the mealybug showed up, and uh, they uh, either were going to be uh, using a cyanide powder on the crop or they imported uh, an Australian lady beetle called cryptolamus to. Control the mealybug, and that was um, that started a couple of very old insectories in California, and some of them are still there to this day. They tend to be very specialized, and they still do just the citrus industry. But uh, that sort of got it started. Our real industry was actually becoming quite a big industry in the 20s and 30s. Um, and I was talking to an old old grower in uh, in, De- in Delta one time, and he said he remembered going to the train station and in New Westminster to wait for the shipment of uh, beneficial insects from Dominion Insectary in Ontario to put in his broccoli crop. And uh, it was actually quite a thriving business, and worldwide it was expanding relatively rapidly until World War II. And that was when um, the nerve uh, gas, uh, the phosgene, Was uh, suddenly realized that it was also very effective as an insecticide, and so uh, DDT was created. And Monsanto, not Monsanto, Dow Chemical got going, and uh, and I would say within six months, all of the insectaries around the world went bankrupt. Uh, Instantly, the growers embraced (laughs) the uh, this new technology, the new chemistry, and uh, and that got it. uh, That basically killed the industry. Then in the 70s, Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring, and that was probably what what got things turned around. Uh, they realized that the chemicals were becoming extremely toxic. What actually started our company was uh, the province of British Columbia hired Don Elliott, who was actually an entomologist but also was a high school teacher in Alberta, and had been working on the spruce budworm project to come to British Columbia to show growers how to use biological control. And the impetus for that was that TEMIC, which was one of the more powerful organophosphates, was actually becoming so they had to use it at such high concentrations that it was actually uh, killing humans uh, who were consuming the cucumbers or the tomatoes. In California, there was a recorded death and there was a hospitalized person in Pitt Meadows from cucumbers because uh, these basically are all derivatives of the original phosgene gas, so basically nerve gas. Um, and I guess when the government gets to a point uh, when the taxpayers start to die, they have to sit up and take a notice. So, um, so so we were hired and the company was started to to basically show people a, a different approach. And uh, after the first year, it was a booming success. The growers embraced it. They actually had a very good efficacy, very good control. Um, and then the, but the biggest problem was it was most of the products were coming from Europe, and it took long, and the stuff was dead half the time when it arrived, and uh, so they decided that the most important thing to do here was to actually establish an insectary on the west coast, and so Ag Canada uh, and Dave Gillespie and the old Bob Costello from the Province of British Columbia um, went out of their way to help Don get uh, Applied Bionomics started. And we started producing persimilis, which was a spider mite control and incarcia Formosa which was a white fly parasitoid
0: well that that was a that was a pretty pretty bang up job Brian right? that's a great that's a great <laughs> short history thank you um you mentioned uh this is this is like a little bit of a tangent we'll come back to our main conversation can you tell us what 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 an insectary looks like like in a commercial context uh like can you pull the curtain back a bit i'm just so curious i mean i I, partly i just i i I picture like a biodome teeming with um, (laughs) different organisms that you're, you're you're cultivating but how does it how does it work yeah
1: well in most cases we're mostly concerned about segregation basically we're We're a bunch of greenhouses. Right now on site we have, I'm just trying to think about, probably about 18 separated greenhouses and it's important that they're actually physically separated because in some greenhouses we're growing clean tobacco plants and we don't want any pests on them at all and in other houses we're trying to grow uh, tobacco plants loaded with aphids or loaded with white fly and we don't want any parasites or predators. And then, of course, in the other houses, we uh, have the whole system in place where we've got the tobacco, the pest, and the predator or parasite, and we are basically timing it so that we can do it in either a batch system or a continuous system, depending on depending on the pest and depending on how we develop the, the propagation system. The, most of the systems are tri, what we call tri-trophic, which is three, three levels, so plant, pest, and then the pet predator or parasite.
0: And like and liter- th- literally, is that set up to feed a growing population to later harvest, I guess their eggs. Like, is that sort of, yeah. The idea? Yeah.
1: Well, our, yeah. Our biggest challenge and of course growers never appreciate this and they usually get angry at me when I say it, but our biggest challenge is actually growing really healthy, continuous high numbers of white fly and aphids. <laughs> um, it, it, our, Our predators and parasites, they're a piece of cake. They they raise themselves. If you let them, if they accidentally get into the aphid house, they will wipe it out. And uh, so our biggest challenge is growing healthy pests. And uh, yeah, so basically what we learned very quickly was the pests are directly linked to the plant and the plant is directly linked to the pests. And the predator or parasites are delin- is are directly linked to all three so the nutritional requirements all have direct implications on how many pests you get and on how how healthy your end product is as well so so it's all a, a very intertwined uh, thing and and we appreciate that extremely well because we in the wintertime for example if if we're getting uh, if we can't get enough light on our tobacco and and it, Temperatures are a bit on the high side because of the heating. Um, the plants get a bit soft, they get a bit leggy, and so we try and switch to a, a, a what we would call a winter fertilizer, which is instead of ammonium nitrate, more calcium nitrate, and uh, the plants are instantly much healthier, much stiffer, they don't collapse, the leaves don't break off, but the aphids and the whitefly
0: hate it and uh That's a, and this is very this was,
1: difficult to rear
0: this is well let's sorry i i should not be going down this rabbit hole because it's getting away from our main conversation but it also <laughs> it also happens to be fascinating that was going to be my next question is it in your interest in raising say the aphids or the pest for to have unhealthy plants or healthy plants healthy plants the healthier
1: oh. plants the better
0: okay i just because in organics we talk about how it's generally um, unhealthy plants that are attracting the pests like yep. There's almost is that does that is that a is that a contradiction? That's that... true. That's
1: true. In a in a in a range of plants, the the unhealthy one um, will be the one that uh, that can't defend itself as well. And uh, but what we do is we inundate the plants. We don't give them much joy. <laughs> right. So there we load them up with aphids and white fly and spider mite. And uh, and so yes, but yeah. When I go visit a grower, uh, like in a cucumber house, and we look down. A long row, and I'll see uh, a section where there's a little bit of spider mite. My first thought, based on all my years of experience now, is that there's probably a couple of blocked feeder tubes, or there's a fan that's been directly blowing in, right in that spot. Anything that stresses the plants uh, causes spider mites. So, uh, and nine times out of ten, there's yeah, one of the one or two of the feeder tubes are what's actually blocked, and so you blow them out and put them back in, and. And you might have to mist the plants down to sort of help co- you know, compensate for the plant stress, and you can quite often manage spider mites just physically um, if you can catch it early enough. So okay, it's, so it sounds um, it sounds
0: like you really are a believer in you know um, it's the it's it's the unhappy or stressed out plant that is oh, yeah. going to that yeah, is going to attract a, the the pests.
1: Certainly, in the case of spider mite, um, in the case of aphids and whitefly. Um, I would say it's more the more succulent the plant, uh, the more attractive it is to mm-hmm. the sucking insects.
0: Um, um, so, but anyway, just to finish that thought, in, it, you want healthy plants for your pest populations because you want them, you you want and need them to thrive for that stage of, of production. Yeah,
1: yeah, and what we actually have find is that uh, we we have to work into the equation once they're loaded with aphids or whitefly, we have to actually compensate. And treat it like a bigger plant we have to over fertilize because we're not only feeding the plant we're also (laughs) feeding the pest
0: right okay oh that's so interesting okay i'm gonna i'm gonna thank you for that little uh look at at how you do that because it's it's that is cool Um, well and that was
1: one of the things i wanted to talk about it was as the concept of the pest as a symptom and that that sort of uh, it does cover that uh, that part of the discussion because i think it's very important that people realize that um, it is really tightly intertwined, and and there's always a reason for uh, an infestation.
0: Yeah, and and I I'm I'm hoping we'll we'll come back to that. But I I now want to jump over to what you said earlier before you gave us that history, which was that that comment from that grower, that cucumber grower who who asked you to figure out why it wasn't working as well, and and you were saying that the the general industry was getting bigger, and I'm going to assume focused on efficiencies that made the product less effective. So maybe you could pick it up from there because I think that's really interesting to hear about. Well,
1: yeah, and it's very controversial. I mean, the rest of the industry doesn't like me to talk like this because, uh, uh, yeah, what happened was um, as we got bigger, the demand, you know, and people started relying on our industry more and more, what they wanted was consistency. They they don't want to get all excited about managing their spider mites and then have us suddenly show up and say, well, sorry, we don't have anything this week. Um, you're going to have to go back and use your chemicals. So, um, so the industry is under a lot of pressure to find ways to uh, buffer the supply. And, of course, the obvious way to do that is you uh, come up with some sort of storage system. And um, the sad reality is that you can actually store a lot of the products for an extremely long time. Like we have uh, one of our midges, uh, Phytoletes, which is our aphid predatory midge, can actually be successfully stored. Um, I guess it depends on how you call it successful. It can be successfully stored for up to six months at four degrees, which is basically a refrigerator setting. Um, the problem is that they, uh, they, uh, over time there's a linear decline in the number of eggs that they're going to lay. So after three months, uh, they've pretty well absorbed all the eggs that they were going to be laid. And so, so yeah, they'll still survive and pass uh, the quality test because in most cases quality tests are based on emergence or motion or is it alive. But they're actually going to have no effect whatsoever on the pest population. Right. Right. Um, that's an extreme example, but uh, predatory mites, for example, are the same thing. Persimilis—it's uh, very easy to store persimilis for up to 21 days, but um, same thing—they uh, they do absorb their eggs, and they have to reinflate eggs once they're mated again uh, and feeding again. And uh, and at at basically at greenhouse temperatures or in summer temperatures, their lifespan is really only about six or seven days. And so if you've got a product that's been stored for two weeks or a week and you put it in your greenhouse and you warm it up, it's probably not going to live long enough to actually reinflate the egg and lay any new eggs. Mm. And so um, it'll have a pesticide effect, but you'll put it on an elite spider mite, but it won't won't actually lay enough eggs to get the next generation going. And so it won't really give you the effect that it should give you. Uh, And so... The the problem was the industry um, when we started storing the product, uh, because the efficacy dropped. Uh, the The first impact that hit us was not only were we more consistent, but we could also sell twice as much because the growers were suddenly needing twice as much product to get the same effect. And so it was one of those things that um, that pushed the industry down the wrong <laughs> down the wrong road in a really fast way. And so our approach was, well, we want to be different. We're not going to go toe-to-toe with the really big guys that have now basically all moved to Africa um, uh, so, so to get cheaper labor and, of course, better energy uh, costs. Um, we uh, we decided, well, we're going to be different. We're going to focus on efficacy, and and that will open up markets for us that the other companies can't approach and so that's basically what turned us around about 20 years ago we started on that path and and about 15 years ago we had completely committed to, uh, um, to doing the uh, the right thing and going after a completely different market so we started going after ornamentals in a quite a large way our main focus now is ornamentals because of the of the much uh, higher uh, challenge but of course uh, some of our biggest customers are still the big, uh, the big tomato and pepper people and the apple producers that, that know about the efficacy and know how that the product can actually work for them. Hmm.
0: Okay. Well, Brian, I'm gonna, we're going to do one more tangent and then get to talking about those pillars of biological pest control. If right. that sounds okay. So Here. in a separate conversation, I was, I mentioned ladybugs because, and I, I'll say, you know, I think in, at least in my cul-de-sac of the farming industry, that seems to be the one that most kind of think of when they think biological pest control is ladybugs say controlling yep. aphids but you you mentioned you mentioned that the, the ladybug we all picture is, is is one that you can buy but is perhaps not the best species to use could you could you talk about that a bit i just found that curious well
1: you know there's a, there's a number of things with leave there's no denying the poster child for the industry is the ladybug <laughs> and which is really ironic because um and ilds in general like we actually produce two ladybugs that are um, they're both little tiny black beetles uh, one of them is specific for spider mite and one of them is specific for whitefly um but in general the uh, the coccinellids have a couple of bad habits that um that really don't lend themselves to using them as an as a tool for biocontrol and the, the first one is the fact that they are grazers they don't they don't eradicate they um if you give them an open choice in an open system like a big conservatory they uh, they eat a lot of aphids, and actually, if it wasn't for ladybugs, we'd be up to our armpits and aphids, but they, they never clean up. They always leave aphids behind uh, with their egg cluster so that their eggs, when they hatch, there'll be food for their offspring. And so from a biocontrol point of view, that's a, a bad habit. Um, when you lock them into a cage or into a conservatory in the end they will be hundred percent effective because they'll have no choice but if they actually have a choice they'll graze, lay eggs and move on and and their disbursement when you get to the bigger ladybugs like uh, the hippopotamia that's harvested in the wild in California that we all know um, or the new beetle that showed up about uh, fifteen years ago in British Columbia called Harmonia which is the Japanese multicolored lady beetle they eat a lot of aphids, but they're constantly migrating and constantly moving. And uh, so University of California Davis was uh, trying to demonstrate them, uh, how well they could stay in their gardens. And so they did quite a famous experiment about, uh, about 25 years ago where they basically released, um, I think it was about 150 uh, ladybugs per day in their experimental garden. And they painted the legs with a different color every day. And then they went out there every day, and they were scouting in the garden and finding ladybugs. But it was driving them crazy because they could never find a ladybug that had the painted legs. And so their first assumption was uh, for some, they're, they're somehow able to clean the paint off their legs. And so we have to ch- stop the experiment and do something different. So so they sort of dropped the experiment and tried to figure out different ways of painting or, or marking the beetles. And then uh, about a week later, Fresno State uh, entomologist phoned him up and said, hey, I, I knew about your experiment, and I've got some of your uh, painted legs here in my garden. Well, that's you know, that's over 100 miles away. And, uh, and so the paint actually did last. What they, what they saw is what we've seen is that the ladybugs that you buy and release in your field uh, are not the ladybugs that you see the next day. Uh, the ladybugs you see the next day are the native ones that showed up because you've got aphids, and you bought the aphids because you had aphids, and the aphids are a tr- attraction enough to attract the ladybugs in. So, uh, so we try and discourage people from from buying the ladybugs for a number of reasons. And the main the main reason is efficacy, but also there's certainly a moral aspect. The it's one of the last things on the planet that's still wild collected, and uh, and it really is causing a lot of serious concerns in the Sierra Nevadas. Uh, habitat destruction for you know these there's five grandfathered licenses to harvest the ladybugs and they tend to hibernate under rocks up in the Sierra Nevadas and so you know these five different individuals are driving up in their hummers up the creek beds and shoveling them into burlap sacks and sticking them in a a fridge and uh, and so there and the other concern of course is that hippodamia Harmonia has showed up in California, and it is displacing the, hip, the native hippodermia as well. And so the native population is under a lot of stress, and it's going to probably become endangered in the next couple of years. And, of course, the, uh, the droughts that they've had in the forest fires haven't, uh, haven't helped the situation.
0: So, the, for the reasons you've just described, can you stay away from this uh, species. Can you share the Latin name again? The so the California species that that you would recommend yeah, people stay away it's, from. It's
1: the California, and and it's a, there's another similar species in British Columbia. It's the native West Coast one. It's it's called Hippodamia. Okay. And, and they're a great beetle. I mean, as I said right at the beginning, if it wasn't for them, we would literally be up to our armpits and aphids. So it's uh, they have a tremendous impact on managing the total pest population. But as far as specific uses, uh, there are much better products that that persist and uh, stay in your, uh, your cropping area.
0: All right. Well, I think we'll finish our conversation by talking about those much better products. But um, now I want to move on back to kind of our main thread. So
2: again
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right so it's time to take another trip to the coabc conference trade show and for this episode we're going to be talking to a couple of folks from the Center for Sustainable Food Systems at UBC. Jessica Lattis and Melanie Kuxdorf, thanks a lot for joining me.
2: Thanks, thanks for us. having
0: us. Melanie, I think think my first question is for you. You're with the communications team at the Center for Sustainable Food Systems at UBC. Tell me a little bit about the organization and what it focuses on.
2: Yeah, so the Center for Sustainable Food Systems was established 10 years ago next year. And we're at teaching and research center and we call it a local to global food hub and we're working towards making the future of food more sustainable and secure and so we model sustainability at the ubc farm and we do a lot of investigation there it's a site of learning for students we are certified organic as well so we do model an organic system and we have lots of researchers working in everything from bees to the forest to soils you know, the food system touches everyone in every field. So we've got students from all across UBC from different faculties that come to the farm.
0: So Melanie, that, that all sounds really cool. So like how how is the center kind of relevant to members of the public or specifically a farmer?
2: We realized that academia can be in a complete bubble. We don't want to be there for a lot of, like especially us, we, we want our connection with the farmers. And we were trying to fill that gap by starting something that we call the BC Food Web. So connecting the research that is happening here at um, the Center for Sustainable Food Systems and research that's happening at different institutions, so we're not being exclusive to UBC, and connecting those with farmers, and also giving farmers an opportunity to talk back to the researchers and say, hey, this is actually what we want you to focus on.
0: So I know that, that one of your goals in having a booth at our trade show was to talk about the BC Food Web and, at bcfoodweb.ca. And this is kind of a fun one for me because <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know about it until I was preparing for this interview. And I went to bcfoodweb.ca and it is an awesome website. Um, so now I want to I jump over to you, Jessica. Uh, as the BC Food Web Manager, just tell us about this excellent resource.
2: Yeah, so the BC Food Web is a um, freely accessible online portal, which is used to increase access to food systems research results and other, a plethora of other resources, not only for producers, but also for processors, policy makers. We aim to reach educators and even the general public with this site.
0: The, the, the need for a site like this is just so obvious to me as a BC-based farmer, because it really is true that it can be intimidating to kind of like figure out how to go and, 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 and get access to relevant research. This is a really good attempt at, at making that way easier for people in the food system.
2: Yeah. And I just want to also give credit to Dr. Lisa Powell, who in 2018 um, created the BC Food Web as her brainchild as one way to fill the gap in extension services in, in British Columbia.
0: Well, uh, I, just think, I just think it's a really good example uh, of, of a tool that, that will help bridge that gap between academia and, and the people on the ground kind of producing food or working with food in the food system. So thanks very much to you both for, for, for talking about it today. And that website, one more time, is bcfoodweb.ca. Um, Now I want to move on back to kind of our main thread. So again, in a different conversation, you mentioned to me that like, I I think, I think the way you described it was three pillars of biological pest control or three main concepts. And I I, I thought I'd ask you to take, take us through them.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I have a bit of an advantage because I wasn't actually trained as an entomologist. So uh, I, uh, being a microbiologist, I'm, I look at populations rather than individuals. And so I th- I find that very useful in this business because we're really looking at, at the population trends, not necessary specifics. But yeah, the, the, if you look, pick up a textbook, an old textbook in entomology, uh, you'll see there's uh, basically three styles. Uh, one is called Classical. Uh, one is called conservational, and the other one is called inundative. And the industry that I'm in, um, we are the inundative industry. We're, we tend to go to a uh, tomato house and uh, inundate it with beneficials to get rid of the pests. And that's basically considered a one-time approach. It's it's not prophylactic. It's uh, It's more of a reactionary thing. The classical one is the best example. is uh, It's usually done by governments, and it's usually um, when you have an invasive species. and The probably the easiest example right now to give you is the emerald ash borer. when When it showed up in the ash trees in in uh, Michigan area, uh, it was causing tremendous damage to the ash forest. And uh, so what? Uh, the researchers immediately started to do was they tried to find out, okay, what are the natural enemies of this uh, emerald ash borer? Uh, Because there was nothing in North America that recognized it as uh, food. And so they went to China. Actually, the USDA have a Chinese lab, and they went through uh, some candidates. There was three uh, parasites of the emerald ash borer in in, uh, China that they figured were, um, were worth looking at. And they brought them to North America under quarantine, and then they started testing them against non-specific targets. Because one of the big fears that you have is uh, if you bring in something uh, that's going to cure your uh, pest problem, if it if it uh, has uh, if it has other hosts that it's capable of adapting to, it could actually decimate our natural balance and wipe out some of the other borers that that are, um, I won't say are important for the forest, but are certainly part of the ecosystem. And so you can, uh, you can basically turn the whole thing on your head if you're not very careful. So they very carefully uh, make sure there's not a lot of nonspecific targets that could cause problems. And then uh, at the end of the report, Agriculture Canada actually did the report for the USDA. They, uh, they came up with two species that looked quite likely to be quite effective, and not likely to uh, screw up all of the other uh, species in the area. And that, and so what they do is they bring them in, they rear them up in a lab on emerald ash borer, and then they get a specialized permit uh, that the government provides you to, to do a release in the environment. And uh, that was done, and, uh, and if you're lucky and if it works, uh, they establish and they start to control the pest and bring it down to sort of natural pest levels, which are are basically what we call a balanced ecosystem. Um, so that's classical. and uh, And then the uh, the one that our ancestors used has been determined has been called conservational. and And so the best example of that is if you go back to to England and you look at the Croft uh, systems of agriculture. Uh, they had hedgerows, and a lot of the crops were separated by hedgerows, and the hedgerows were um, basically a reservoir of, um, of a mixture of plants that had nectar uh, and uh, and structural plants that offered refuge and also insulation over the winter, and they were basically the homes for the beneficial insects and to some extent the pests. And... Um, and so uh in the old days uh we never we seldom had over uh running pest problems because uh there wasn't international travel so you didn't get some weird new pest showing up and uh you always had predators and parasites living and coexisting with the pests that you were dealing with And so when the pests got a little bit out of line, um, it would just be more food and more incentive for the parasites and the predators and their offspring would uh, reproduce faster and they would manage the system. So there was always a bit of a crop loss and there was always an active dynamic, but uh, there wasn't total crop failures.
0: And of course, a big problem of modern agriculture has been the elimination of diversity in our systems, and so I guess exactly. we Yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah. Uh, this is this is almost an off recording uh, little tidbit, but w- 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 in another episode of this podcast, um I interview a researcher, I can only remember her first name right now, Chandra, but she's involved in work that combine the classical and the conservational to control spotted wing Drosophila. Um, so she right. was reviewing some of their results in, in, including, um, exploring for natural predators coming from Asia, um, yep. in the way you describe, and, and then also, um, researching, you know, some of, some of the permanent habitat that can house some of these parasitoid wa- wasps that, that they're right. hoping can take, can control these populations naturally.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And spotted wing drosophila is a, is a good example of, yeah. You know, I, I sit on the, uh, Napo North American Plant Protection Organization's uh, biological control expert panel, which, which is basically USDA, Ag Canada, CFIA, and uh, I forget the name of the Mexico and government guys, but it's, it's primarily it's government uh, the government people that are responsible for regulatory and uh, research, and then in North America, because there's only three countries, they allow an industry rep from each country to be on the panel so they get some good feedback from the industry. So I'm the Canadian industry rep, and uh, we had a long discussion on the spotted-wing drosophila because uh, when when the governments get a new pest like that, um, the panic mode hits in. Of course, you know, uh, the politicians are under pressure, the farmers are screaming at the politicians, what are you going to do about it? And so what usually happens and what has always happened for the last at least 35, 40 years is that when a new pest shows up, they basically re-register uh, banned chemicals and let them go go at it. And uh, and so my discussion with this group was, uh, uh, you know, basically name name me a time when that product, uh, where, where that idea has ever worked.
0: It's, yeah, it's especially over worked. the long term, right?
1: It's never worked. There's never there's they couldn't give me an example of where they successfully eradicated a pest. And and the so the, and the problem is that when you dump um, malathion and orthene on blueberries to control the spotted wing drosophila, you're never going to get any biocontrol because you're basically repelling all of the stuff that could start to work against it is going to be uh, is going to be either killed or or dissuaded to to move into the area, and so you know luckily I mean spotted wing drosophila. Is only really a pest for agriculture from the beginning of July to the end of august. and uh, and so you know they don't uh, go after it in the spring when it's in creek beds and ro- and ditches feeding on you know native gooseberries and salmon berries and stuff like that. And so luckily, uh, because they didn't go after it there, um, the two things happened. The native parasitoids have shown uh, some efficacy. And the Japanese, the main Japanese parasitoid um, has actually shown up as well. So it's in British Columbia, and it's going to start taking care of it. But, but the, the truth is, in almost every single case, the best thing to do is have a press conference and stand up in front of the public and say that we have, we're aware of this new problem, it's a devastating problem for the industry, and after uh, discussion with the best experts, our uh, position is that the best thing to do is absolutely nothing. And, uh, <laughs> and that is the truth, but I don't think politically that's going to sell. So I appreciate the political side of it. It's, uh, um, people have to be shown to do something. Like we were dealing with the uh, city of Montreal last year on uh, their shade trees and they had the same problem the public expect you to show up in hazmat suits with a tank full of horrible stuff to kill the aphids and they know that that doesn't actually do the job and it's also very hazardous and so i basically said well the best thing to spray is actually just water because you can you can you can knock the aphids off you can upset them you can wash away all the honeydew and if you have to dress up in hazmat suits and and call it something else other than water. I said for political reasons. Then go ahead and do it. But that is actually the best the best approach. <laughs> pest, pest control
0: theater. I, I love it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Placebo is is a huge thing in this thing. But yeah. So yeah. The good news is spotted wing drosophila is being controlled. The brown marmorated stink bug. There's now native. Uh, parasitoids of stink bugs that are starting to uh, decide oh I, I like this Chinese food so they <laughs> they're they're suddenly adapting to it and if you just leave things alone nature does does end up fixing it uh, the problem is if you're trying to sell blueberries for the for the two or three years where you're being ravaged by uh, by the spotted-wing drosophila, then I certainly appreciate the fact that, that uh, yes, there's a problem. But during that period, while uh, the, the non-organic guys were literally on a th- three-week schedule of malathion, orthene, and dirzban, uh we were working with organic blueberries next door and getting good biocontrol with, um, with trapping of the uh, spotted-wing drosophila and, uh, and if aphid control using aphidolides
0: so all right so so um i want to kind of focus now on on strategies on farm for the last part of our conversation so so maybe ultimately i'm going to kind of ask you about the inundative approach but first i'd like to ask you about some good or best practices on the farm as far as the conservational approach goes brian so so yeah, could you talk about yeah, that well, a bit
1: well yeah sure and, and actually um if you phone me up and ask me for an inundative approach i'll i'll give you my competitors names and uh because uh, I I don't think it really works that well. Um, when we're working with farms like um, you know bro- organic broccoli guys uh, down in California that we've worked with for years and that, I mean, it, it's basically we we need to look at the sca- landscape, and and uh, we don't want to see 40 acres of rows of uh, broccoli. <laughs> and, uh, and, so the, and so I'll say, well, what you need is uh, on every acre you need about a 10 square foot patch of uh, sunflowers and alyssum and yarrow and wild carrot and that kind of thing. And you don't need very much. You just need a couple of patches and the growers go, well, you know, I, I can't afford to lose that. Well, it, when you walk a field there, uh, you know, there's always a dip in gullies and there's always areas that are uh, relatively unproductive. And so you just take the uh, the little swales where it tends to stay too wet for your crop, and you turn that into a into a basically a, a mini hedgerow. Um, so that can be done, you know, very easily. If nothing else, then at least do make sure the perimeter is is kept uh, wild. You know, it's uh, when when they were looking at the um, at the corn borer. Um, in, in Switzerland, what they found was that they, they couldn't find the parasitoid uh, trichogramma, the egg parasitoid, the corn borer, anywhere in the corn crop. And what they found it was in the perimeters, and that's because the uh, moths and the butterfly, I can't remember if it was a moth or a butterfly, uh, they, they love nectar. So they go into the uh, surrounding shrubs and they uh, eat nectar from the sunflowers or whatever's uh, growing there, or alyssum. And the trichogramma actually hide out there, and when the moth is actually licking up the nectar, they actually very subtly climb up onto the butterfly and sit on the wings. And uh, I saw a photograph from the from the, uh, planned, from the entomologist, and there's like 40 trichogramma wasps sitting on a butterfly wing. And then oh, when the butterfly has had its fillet flutters back into the corn to lay its eggs, the wasp uh, jump off and parasitize the eggs. You are kidding so, me. So, there's a, so I think we need to do a lot more work with um, behavior uh, of insects and look at the... They're a lot more complicated than we think, and it's and it's not just black and white stuff. So, so when we're dealing with people that have caterpillar problems, we uh, we what we do is we have patches of sunflowers, which moths love and butterflies love, or or buddleia, you know, the butterfly bush, and we hang uh, trichogramma wasps in those bushes. We don't waste the time using. Uh, Drones to drop trichogram all over the corn crop. We just uh, we know that they're going to come to us, so uh, we wait for them there. In a greenhouse, you can hang a uh, trichogram on a card, just on a bug zapper, on a on a on an ultraviolet light. And of course, the moths are attracted to the light, and the ones that aren't actually killed will pick up will pick up the uh, the trichogram there, and then uh, carry it back into the crop to uh, so their eggs can be parasitized.
0: Wow. So could you think about, um, BC farming and t- I don't know, choose two or three primary pests and talk about, um, the, the predators that, that could be, can be purchased, um, to, to introduce into the farm ecosystem?
1: Yeah. Yeah. A good example is aphids. Um, we've worked with a lot of organic apple, uh, people on controlling it, it the The interesting thing with the Aphid program is that uh, because they're native and because they uh, they can actually um, uh, survive the winter, they establish. and And we first saw this with the pecan guys down in Oklahoma was that uh, we were only selling to them about once every five years. and And what we found was it basically took about five years for the for the product to dilute itself to a point where the aphids uh, started to build up again. And then you just had to reintroduce. And so our approach to the apple orchards um, and to the pecans and the, to the tree guys that are dealing with aphids and the hazelnut guys is we actually do a mini classical approach. We find the worst trees, the trees that have the highest numbers of aphids, and we release um, a proportionate amount. And so and uh, with the of aphidellides and and. When I say proportionate, if I if we release too many, then all of the aphids will be killed relatively quickly, but there won't the offspring won't actually have enough food to successfully pupate, and so our approach to agricultural biocontrol is that less is usually better than more, hmm. and because uh, what we want to ensure that if we put a thousand the fiddleredes in a tree in a, or in, in a cluster of trees that have fairly high aphid population, we want to make sure that that 1,000 in two weeks becomes 20,000. And, uh, so, and that will only happen if they can all find enough food to successfully pupate. And those 20,000, if they can spread into the, into the surrounding trees, become, uh, become, uh, become 400,000 uh, in two weeks after that. And so, typically, uh, you know, you get that exponential growth. Um, after two generations, you've pretty well taken care of, of uh, about 150 hectares. So, uh, you so you know you can you can spend an awful lot of money to cut the cycle short by about a week. But um, if you just let it go naturally, and of course, you know, what we also find is that when Growers uh, uh, embrace the uh, the idea of using biological control. They stop the sprays. They stop and 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 I and I say that even to the organic guys because um, yeah, I'm a bit jaded because my experience with uh, organic growers in uh, the big multinationals in California is that they I've never seen growers that spray more often mm-hmm. than the organic guys and uh, they've got a list of five. That they can spray and they spray them all the time and they're just as toxic as the really horrible chemicals they just happen to be chemicals that were naturally uh you know found but i mm-hmm. mean nature's got some pretty nasty uh, nasty chemicals <laughs> so uh so the important thing is once you embrace biocontrol um then the native stuff all shows up too so then when you go scouting two weeks later you'll not only find a fiddle in the apple trees you'll find high levels of lacewing populations in the trees. You'll find high levels of ladybugs, the hippodamia, and uh, maybe the harmonia as well. And then the parasite wasps show up, show up as well. And there's native parasites that are usually adapting pretty quickly to the pests that you have. And they can uh, significantly alter the population too. So in a lot of cases, I mean, it's a bit of brinksmanship, and you have to, and, and the really good uh, biocontrol growers the people that that use biocontrol effectively if they have one thing in common they've all had a they've all had a crisis they've all they've all gotten to a point where they're pulling their hair out and they're saying oh i'm going to have to do something and then we if we can convince them to not do something um, then the next week all of a sudden everything just immediately turns around and it's wonderful and you almost have to get to that point to become confident because once you're confident that it does work and it can work um, then you don't panic and panicking is what really wipes out bio control because if you do a little bit of a spray I mean if you have to do a spray um, you know with ornamentals it's a bit different if you're shipping them and they've got a problem you and the loading dock you might have to spray to clean up Um, but uh, if you have to spray the rule is always make sure it's just a spot spray just treat that one that one little area because you really do screw up everything. And spraying anything aside from water usually has some pretty serious negative effects. A lot of people really love the idea of uh, of, of soap, uh, spraying soap. Um, but when you think of it from a plant point of view, I mean most plants have essential oils and waxes that they produce uh, to prevent themselves from being desiccated or or, or as, as a as a frontline defense, just like we have skin. And when you uh, use soap, you uh, dissolve all of those waxes and oils. And if you use soap a lot, um, you're constantly stressing the plants. And then, of course, once the plants are stressed, they're much more exposed for spider mites and for other infections as well. so so we we really try and get people to um, the the thing that that most insects hate, like thrips and spider mite is rain and uh, and you only run into huge problems with thrips and spider mites in protected crops and so if you can uh, give them rain uh, it totally pisses them off and you can uh, and you can usually manage thrips and spider mites just by using uh, water
0: Mm. so brian uh biological pest control is something that i've been aware of as a grower for a long time but i've never purchased and i mean it's it's, uh, it's I'm in danger of using too small a sample size, um, one data point being myself, but I have a sense that it's not purchased. Purchased biological pest control is not very common among small scale farms. And I'm wondering if that's just a lack of awareness of, about tools available to them through companies like yours or whether it just happens yeah. that it's um, just not very cost effective. Like, cause you keep mentioning large clients and I'm yeah. wondering, is, is, is there is there, is it pretty expensive when you're only wanting to purchase the smaller no, amounts not, necessary for not your really. small
1: farm? Not no? really. The main, the main reason most guys don't, uh, small guys don't know a lot about it is because the bigger companies, um, they, they're not going to be bothered with a small company. I mean, they, they, they can sell a hundred thousand dollars with a product at a big t- tomato house. So their salespeople usually work on a commission basis and, uh, so they're not going to stop by a one-acre uh, broccoli and uh, and um, onion farm and because uh, and, it's just they've got better things to do and they can be more productive going elsewhere. So, so, that's, so that's one of the reasons why we don't have sales staff because we want to get everybody and the best way to get everybody is through our website. But we also have distributors, but it's the same problem. Our distributors, they only have so much time and they need to fish where the fish are and uh, and so, if they've got a customer who potentially could be buying a thousand dollars worth of product on a weekly basis, um, are they going to go visit a, a grower that maybe is only going to spend a hundred dollars for the rest of the year? Mm-hmm. And uh, the answer to that is probably not. I I will because to me, I need to learn, and I, and our company approaches the little guys as much, and and if we could get our big guys to only spend a hundred dollars a year that would even be better. But, uh, you know, you know, you know, Brian, I'm going to interrupt you
0: and tell you what's been entering my mind through this conversation, which is that you keep mentioning your attempts to decrease your sales. And it's starting to make me think you're the, you're the, you're the, you're the biological pest control equivalent of Monty Python's cheese shop. Exactly.
1: (laughs) 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 It works. So you know, I just look ahead to the future and I'm saying, okay, um, Uh, Joke Van Lentern, a famous professor in entomology from uh, Holland, um, published a really good um, textbook about, I guess, about 15 years ago now. And he was looking at biological control on the overall plant, on the planet, against the planet's pest control. And basically, biological control represented, at that time, 0.2% of global pest control. And I would say in the last 15 years, uh, in a lot of crops and in a lot of markets, we've gone from 0.2 percent to 2 percent. Um, but I think in the next 20 or 30 years, um, as the chemical guys run out of ideas, um, we're going to have to go to 20 percent. And so I'm looking at my company and the people I have, and this, and the, and even our potential for how fast can you grow and how fast can you train new people and that and I, we have to find better ways and smarter ways to use more efficacious products rather than just going after how many dollars can we sell this month and so um, so I've been very successful when I was going to university I was uh, I worked at <clears throat> Kitts Marine selling sailboat equipment and my approach right from the, the day one and it's always been very successful is to try and basically talk people out of spending too much money. And if you do that and you can demonstrate efficacy, um, they're your customer for life. And also then you get a good rapport with with the customer, and you can actually become better at what you do. so so we uh, we approach things from a point of view that gee, we we would love to cut your bill in half. Um, and uh, if you know we try this and try that, we can maybe do it.
0: Well, Brian Spencer, um, your passion for this topic is is uh, not just obvious, it's it's infectious. Um, and I've I've really enjoyed our our conversation. People who want to um, attempt um, to 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 give Brian's company some money, I wish you luck. Um, can go can <laughs> go to, can go to appliedbio-nomics.com. That's appliedbio then a dash then nomics.com. Uh, thank you so much, Brian.
1: Yep, no problem. It was a lot of fun.
0: All right, that's it for now. Special thanks for our podcast music goes out to Matt Eckle, a jazz flutist and father of organic rancher Avin Banwell. You can search for Matt's music online. Eckle is spelled E-A-K-L-E. I also want to thank all of the guest interviewers you'll be hearing in this series as we re-release it over the next few months. Gavin Wright, Molly Thurston, Abra Bryn, Tristan Banwell, and Emma Holmes, thanks to all of you for your contributions to the show. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed what you just heard. I'm Jordan Marr, and I will talk to you soon.